You're listening to The Dead Prussian, a podcast about war and warfare. So we've talked a little bit about prisoners of war before on the show. We've talked about their experiences. Uh, we've talked about their stories and narratives. But one of the things we haven't talked about, ladies and gentlemen, is the political ramifications, the political influences, and how those political influences may impact their captivity. G'day listeners and welcome to the Dead Prussian Podcast. I'm your host, the humblest host you know, Mick. Now thank you very much for all those listeners out there that are throwing down some stars on iTunes for us. It's great to see your support help us climb that ladder. It's not a corporate ladder, it's much more fun. Also, thank you very much to my Patreon supporters who are out there keeping the lights on in the Dead Prussian Studios. Your support is always welcome, and as a result, you get bonus content. Now, you heard me talk about prisoners of war in the intro, ladies and gents, and you know that we have covered different types of prisoners of war before, primarily from an Australian point of view, actually, but we haven't really covered uh, great power politics and its influence on prisoners of war. So, hopefully, we'll be able to cover some of that today. My guest today is Serhi Plochi. He's the Mikhailo Hereshvsky, and I'm sorry to any of my uh, listeners out there who know how to pronounce these words and don't get them. Um, he's the Professor of History and Director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. He also serves on the Executive Committee of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. He's the author of over a dozen books, and if you click on his name in our show notes, you'll be able to go to his page at uh, Harvard on the website, and you'll see a list of all the books that uh, he's written. Um, and those books are on the history of Eastern Europe and also the Cold War. In fact, they're on the history of Eastern Europe and the Cold War. makes it very, very simple for those people wanting to read about the History of Eastern Europe and the Cold War, and these books include uh, Yalta and Chernobyl, uh, which was awarded the 2018 Bailey Gifford Prize. That was formerly the Samuel Johnson Prize. So, hey, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, uh, you're most welcome. I'm happy to be on the show, especially given that in late February and March, I'm coming to Australia uh, to a book festival uh, uh, in uh, Adelaide, so I'm I'm really getting ready for that trip. Is this interview? That's uh, that's wonderful news. We have quite a few listeners in Adelaide. I'm not sure if we have any friends in Adelaide, but we've got quite a few listeners in Adelaide. Now, uh, Serhi, before we start discussing your book, um, I'm keen to find out how you got interested in researching uh, Eastern Europe and and the Cold War. Uh, well, uh, again, I'm I'm a child of the Cold War. Uh, I grew up, uh, as some people would say, on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. Mm. So that was really something that uh, was was interesting for me. I have my first memories coming really from the late sixties and early seventies. Uh, and when it comes to the World War Two to the Second World War. Again, uh, I grew up in Ukraine, and that was one of the main battlegrounds of the uh, of the war on the Eastern Front. 
Um, one thing that for me was really difficult to imagine growing up in the uh, Cold War, but thinking about World War II, was that the uh, Soviets and the Americans and the British, including Australians, were all on the same on the same side in that war. Mm. Uh, of course, the Cold War had a very different different lines, dividing lines. And uh, the topic of uh, my book, most recent book, is about that very peculiar moment in, in World War II that would be difficult to imagine in Cold War, and that's the presence of the American air bases and American airmen on the Soviet territory, in fact, in, in, in almost in my own background, uh, backyard in, in Ukraine. Mm. And that's, that's, that's the topic of the book. And uh, and your book is called uh, Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front. Um, now, can you provide our listeners a little bit of a, a broad understanding of, of what the book means? I mean, it's a great title, so I'm sure it's going to sell like hotcakes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I hope so. Well, uh, the um, uh, American airmen who were in uh, um, Ukraine between 1944 and 1945 there was an active stage in their operations, um, which was going between April of 44 and until uh, late September and October of 1944. And after that, there was they left out of three bases, just one. And people on that base were calling themselves forgotten bastards of Ukraine. And uh, apparently that was a, a metaphor that of being forgotten bastards, which was popular with the U.S. airmen all over the world. There was another group in uh, Iceland who were left there for the duration of the war and were called, they called themselves forgotten bastards of Ireland and uh, or uh, short for that FBI. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, my, my book is about about uh, those uh, quote unquote forgotten bastards in Ukraine. But uh, going back to how they ended up there, uh, the uh, issue was that uh, the um, uh, American um, airplanes. Uh, were uh, not able to get the targets they wanted to get flying from uh, air bases in United Kingdom and in Italy. And the targets they wanted to get by the end of 43, early 44, were the um, um, uh, all sorts of German production facilities and oil, uh, oil, oil refineries in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. So the um, fighter planes that they had at that time were not uh, good enough to provide support on this long, long-term long uh, um, uh, operations where they had to fly, let's say, all the way to Warsaw uh, and then fly back to UK. So the idea was born that what about a shuttle bombing? What if the U.S. would have uh, a couple of air bases on the Soviet territory where the planes could actually go bomb targets in Eastern Europe, land also in Eastern Europe, get refueled, get new ammunition, and then fly back either to Italy or UK and do the bombing. And that was the rationale behind uh, behind putting air bases there. Of course, 
The Soviets were very reluctant to allow any foreigners on their own soil for a number of reasons. But they wanted to, to, to charm the, the, the U.S. and the British commanders into opening the Second Front in Europe. And that was their political political rationale for allowing those bases to be established there. And once the Second Front was opened in June of 1944, by the end of the summer, the, the Soviet enthusiasm about the bases actually disappeared, and they were trying to push Americans out as, as, as soon as they could. Mm. The Americans resisted. One of the bases uh, stayed there until, until the end of war in Europe. That means until uh, late May and June of 1945. Yeah. So that, that's the basic background for the story. And uh, and let's let's start with the the Grand Alliance um, because uh, there, there's probably some listeners out there because we have a pretty broad um, broad group of listeners. We've got everyone from someone who's really stupid right through to really smart people. So uh, let's talk about the Grand Alliance. Uh, what was it? Well, uh, the Grand Alliance was um, uh, an alliance that was created in the middle of uh, World War II. Uh, it included as its main participants the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Soviet Union. There were a couple of particular things about that alliance, and that uh, one of them was that the allies uh, started the war on the different sides. So Stalin certainly was in alliance in 1939 with uh, uh, Hitler and Hitler's Germany, when uh, Britain, backed by the United States, was on the, on the other side of the divide. Uh, uh, together with France, they, they declared war on Germany. But uh, when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941, again, the lines uh, were redrawn, and that's, that's where the foundations for the alliance uh, of, uh, of UK, US, and uh, USSR, the Soviet Union, came into existence. Yeah. Uh, Another particular part about that alliance was that if the British, including uh, uh, Australians and and the the uh, U.S., were cap- able to fight together side by side in, in 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 places like Sicily and Italy and and France and and so on and so forth, the Soviets were waging their own war on the Eastern Front. So uh, they, they they were there were no real cooperation in the battlefield from that point of view. There was a general political understanding and, and geostrategic planning, but there was no close cooperation with that one and only exception, and that were, were those three U.S. air bases on the Soviet territory that I discuss in my book. Right, and, uh, and I guess uh, the second part of your book, uh, which... And, and hopefully I'll get the pronunciation right again. It, it highlights the Battle of Poltava. Um, and, yes, yes, Poltava, right. And we move from a, a grand alliance right down to a, to a battle. So why are the battles of Poltava um, significant? Uh, well, um, I alluded, of course, to a battle of Poltava of 1709, and that was the, the battle between uh, Russia and Sweden in the Northern War. 
that uh, really, really ended with victory for Russia and eventually started, that uh, jump started really the ascent of that country to the status of European great power. Uh, The battles of Poltava that I describe in my book were more uh, not uh, battles on the the real battleground, but more uh, this rising tensions between the Americans and the Soviets. And um, uh, the uh, Soviets, as I explained already once, the um, Second Front was there, they, the political political will to, to allow to keep the foreigners on the Soviet soil, soil disappeared. But on the top of that, Luftwaffe in, uh, on June 22nd, 1944, was able to get to the Poltava air bases and and bomb bomb the American airplanes that were parked there. The Soviets were not able to protect them. They didn't have radars. They couldn't. They were not able to do anything with the American. Uh, uh, sorry, with, with the Luftwaffe during nighttime, and the raid took place during nighttime. So that the, the, that was a major major uh, uh, blow to the to the uh, alliance in that particular place. The Americans were talking about the worst disasters in Pearl Harbor in the sense that they never lost as many planes on the ground uh, uh, after after Pearl Harbor as they lost at Poltava. And yeah. that was a very embarrassing situation for the Soviets, who again that added to their to their desire to get Americans out. And that's that's those tensions are the battles that I uh, refer to. Right, uh, it's a it's a fascinating sort of uh, history. Um, and now I'm going to uh, spend the rest of my evening uh, looking up um, 1709. Um, but you also uh, we've talked about. You know, the relationship between the U.S. and the Soviets here, and most, most listeners probably talk, know about the Cold War tensions, but, you know, we're talking, you know, about an alliance between the two at the time. Now, you talk about the difference between the uh, alliance members in your book, but I guess um, how, how did this alliance come together with all these ideological tensions? Well, uh, one thing that was there was that um, there was still a lot in common between between the two uh, between the two parties. The main thing in common was a common enemy. So yes. that was Germany, and then eventually it became Japan as well. So that was the basic rationale behind the alliance. When you look at the uh, the um, Americans who come to to Ukraine, who come to the Soviet Union in 44, 45, originally they're really very excited about being able to fight side by side with their allies. There is a huge admiration and appreciation of the Soviet war effort. This is happening after the Battle of Stalingrad, after the Battle of Kursk. So the, the, the Soviets are doing more fighting than certainly the 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 rest of the allies at that yeah. at that point in 1943 uh, and uh, uh, i expected when i was looking at those documents including the kgb documents so the documents of the mil- soviet military counterintelligence and secret police the documents about surveillance 
uh, that uh, I was surprised that many of the Americans actually uh, didn't have ideological, huge ideological differences with the Soviets when it comes to this uh, socialism versus uh, capitalism debate. Many of them came from left-leaning families. The, many of them lived through the Great Depression, so they were quite critical about capitalism. So that that uh, again, those tensions were there, but they were not the most important ones. The most important ones that came to the fore was really the rejection by the Americans of the mm, this authoritarian regime, as really a, a secret police state, and the official lies. So uh, but the, if 90% of the Americans came really very friendly toward the Soviet Union, those who stayed on the basis permanently, 90% of them then left the Soviet Union as being sworn enemies of, of uh, Stalinism, uh, uh, socialism, communism, you call it. And I, I continue stories of some of them into the Cold War, and they turned out to be very, very important uh, figures in, in the Cold War as it started to unfold in 1947 and 1948. And I guess uh, now I've talked a bit about you know, the, the prisoners, the, the forgotten bastards. Um, I just love that title because uh, it means I'm going to have to put an explicit rating on this because of that single word, but it's it's good. Um, how did they find their way back home, and what are the politics that were required uh, for these you know these air bases um, and individuals uh, left there in the, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, as you say? Well. Um... The um, I, I described the, the, the military rationale for basis from, from American perspective. But even more important, there was a political one. And one of those things was to show the Germans that allies, including the Western allies and the Soviets, could fight together, that the alliance was strong. Uh, uh, Germans certainly hoped that there would be the, that there would be um, uh, cracks in the alliance, and eventually that would save Hitler and would save Berlin. So that was one uh, symbolically very important role that those bases played. The second one was that the U.S. was preparing for uh, a really war with Japan on on the on the islands per se on the, the, the Japanese quote unquote mainland and and in, in China as well and uh, the losses were quite significant and what they thought that they would need that they would need the air bases uh, on the Soviet territory in the Soviet Far East to support their war effort and their their, their war in in Japan per se and uh, the, they um, insisted on having those bases partially also to show the Soviets that they were good allies, that the Soviets had nothing to fear from them, and in that way um, really make a way for the for the uh, building of the of the bases in the uh, in the Soviet forest. Eventually, that. Um, didn't happen, and and uh, from the strategic point was not necessary. Again, the, the the U.S. was able to establish air bases on the on the islands, and that that became less important. But that was a very important part of the story. 
On the Soviet side, again, there were a lot of a, a lot of politics. On the one hand, the, the the Americans were allies, but if you look at the documents of the Soviet counterintelligence, they were really treating them as enemies, or at least potential enemies. They were following them, they were harassing the lo- local population, in particular women who were dating Americans, trying to break those contacts and relations. Uh, partially because they were so insecure about their, uh, uh, I would say, ideological also underpinnings of their regime. They thought that, okay, this this uh, people from the capitalist West, they can contaminate the good um, um, trusting and, 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 and true believers among, among the communist population in, in, in the Soviet Union. So again, politics were all over the place. It was really uh, as as much about politics as it was about the the war and the the war effort per se. Now, sir, he, um, we could probably uh, sit here all night uh, talking about this. In fact, you've written a uh, a book on it, so I'm, I know there's a there's probably at least you know it's a two hundred ninety or so page book. So we're probably uh, with my fascinating questions, we've probably delved into about four pages worth of the total book, but um, but our yeah. listeners probably uh, don't have time for me to go uh, through all the things I found fascinating with the book. So we'll move on to the bonus question for those subscribers of the show that uh, throw a little bit of tin our way to keep the, the lights on and us on the digital airwaves. So we'll just have a quick pause. And now we'll go to the, uh, to the bonus question. Now, uh, in your opinion, uh, what is the most significant lesson from this interaction of Grand Alliance partners? Uh, very fascinating uh, interaction um, with the air bases and the you know the end of the Second World War and the, the start of the Cold War. And, you know, w- w- how how can we actually um, apply that to today? Well, uh, Grand Alliance was a very successful alliance from the military point of view. It achieved its goal. Um, um, uh, but uh, because of that huge success, there were also very high expectations that the cooperation between allies would continue into the post-war era. And it certainly continued between the, the, the British and the Americans, and at that time it was British Empire and Dominions and so on and so forth. But the alliance fell apart between the Western allies and, and, and the Soviet Union. And that produced really the Cold War, and there was a lot of disappointment about that. And one of the lessons of of, of my book is that really a a major contributing factor to that alliance falling apart was really this um, disconnect between the political systems in the U.S. and U.K. on the one hand, and the Soviet Union on another. So the um, alliance was already rejected by the Americans on the ground in the Soviet Union in 1944 uh, for the reasons that I just described, a, a police state uh, which didn't allow any, any freedom of communication or expression of any ideas. Yeah. And what that means for the future is that um, we should be quite quite uh, uh, cautious in terms of our expectations for the future alliances. 
unless they're based also on some common commonalities in terms of political culture and understanding what freedom is, what tyranny is, and so on and so forth. So those those are not just big words. It looks like they, they're also big factors in, in, in foreign policy, as, as uh, I, I certainly learned researching the book. Thanks, Sir. That's a that's a fascinating, uh, I guess, lesson. Um, the, our our Patreon listeners, I call them legends, can uh, adhere to and make sure. You know, I've got a few power brokers who listen to the show, so as long as they're setting up the right kinds of alliances with their right ideological partners, we should be good. We'll just have a quick pause again, and we'll go back to the uh, the remainder of our listeners. And now, Sir, he, my final question is one I ask of all guests. It relates to our mission on the show to define war in as many ways as possible, just like Big Carl, the dead Prussian himself. I ask each guest to finish the sentence, war is. So right now, Suhi, can you please finish the sentence, war is? Well, uh, war, war is as much about enemies as it is about the allies. Hmm. How is that for one sentence? That is that is excellent. Um, and you know what? You get a, a golf clap because... You're an academic that was able to be concise, which uh, that's no uh, that's no um, no small achievement given some of the other guests I've had on the show, and they are most of my listeners, so they know who I'm talking about. But that is excellent, um, as much about enemies as it is about allies. Um, now, Sir, he, thank you very much for coming on the show and discussing your book, uh, Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front: American Airmen Behind the Soviet Lines and the Collapse of the Grand Alliance. Well, thank you, Mick. Uh, it was a pleasure. And again, I look forward to meeting maybe some of your uh, listeners and subscribers uh, in March. We'll, uh, we'll be there. I might not be there, but uh, my listeners definitely will. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can support Sir his work by, uh, one, buying his book. Uh, click on our show notes. You've got the links there. Now, the book was published uh, by Oxford University Press. Uh, so make sure you jump on there and support uh, so he and Oxford University Press, and don't worry. Thank, thank you, Mick. And it's 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 Penguin uh, in uh, UK, and I assume in Australia as well. So it's a, a different publisher in Australia. But again, thanks. Thank you. Not a problem. I'll find out who the Australian publisher is, and I'll uh, I'll make sure the links uh, are all put up there, ladies and gents. And uh, also, um, jump on. Uh, the Harvard website and search for Sir He's work because there are a lot of books he's written that I know a lot of you listeners will be fascinated in and we'll put some more links on the show notes so that we get our kickback from Amazon as well. But until next time, listeners, grab a book and crack on. Join the conversation with us on Twitter at Dead Prussian Pod, on Facebook at The Dead Prussian Page or on our website, www.thedeadprussian.com. All show notes for this episode, as well as copyright information, can be found on the website. The Dead Prussian podcast is written, produced and hosted by Mick Cook. It is co-produced by Amanda Levito. The music used throughout is Caught in the Beat by Broke for Free and is used under a Creative Commons attribution licence. All opinions expressed by individuals on the podcast are those of the individual and not necessarily representative of any other organisation.